We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Dion shares his message on the grace of forgiveness. Well, I want to start off today by saying I take full responsibility for the Arctic weather we've had over the last couple of weeks. I've observed that weird things happen here when we start planning a message series at Pathfinder. Stuff, stuff you know, kind of happens in the world. And so now that we're beginning this series, maybe we'll get back to normal winter weather and not this crazy stuff we've been having. Icebergs, uh, they are breathtaking. But as we know, they're also dangerous. Um, we're aware of this, I think, that the part of the iceberg that you can see may only be 10% of the total mass of the iceberg, 90%. Of, of one of these majestic things lies beneath the surface. Of course, you probably already knew that because we've all seen Titanic, so we know, right? The tip of the iceberg, the proverbial tip of the iceberg is only a part of it, a portion of what is concealed beneath the surface. You know that, but maybe you don't know this, that there is a phenomenon that happens as these icebergs move into warmer waters, as they start to melt. Often what happens is their weight gets imbalanced, they, they start to shift their weight, and then there will come a moment when these icebergs literally flip over and everything that was once concealed and hidden, that 90% below the surface, suddenly is revealed, it comes to light. Now you could YouTube this, and uh, I'd encourage you to do so, there's some fantastic videos that are out there of icebergs flipping, people who catch them on camera. I wanna just give you a glimpse of that because I don't want you to have to wait till later and I don't want you to certainly you know, click away from the message to watch this now. Um, so I wanna give you a glimpse of one of these icebergs flipping off the coast of Argentina, take a look. Like I said, uh, if you go and YouTube this later, you'll, you'll see ones flipping with people on them. I mean, it, it's it, beautiful, it's, it's dangerous. Um, but this only happens, this phenomenon only happens when an iceberg starts to melt. For those that remain in the cooler waters, those that remain completely intact, this never happens. So what that means is, for icebergs that stay in the colder waters, that stay intact, you never get to fully see all that lies beneath the surface. It remains hidden. And here's my fear. I'm afraid that's what the grace of God is like for us. See, as Christians, and if you're new to the faith or if you're exploring the faith, as Christians, we talk about the grace of God all the time. We sing songs about it. We say it is the foundation of our faith. I think what we're talking about though, what we conceive of, what we put our trust in, it is only the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so much more that that we are unaware of. We have no idea how massive God's grace really is, how big his kindness is, or how deep it goes. And this series is all about that though. It's all about beginning to expose, revealing the breathtaking kindness of God because here's what I know. 
that the kindness of God is far greater than you can imagine. It's, it's bigger than anything you could dream of. Frankly speaking, the kindness of God is greater than, it's bigger than what you're probably comfortable with. And I actually want to start there today. So I think when it comes down to it, I don't believe we're very comfortable with a kind God. If you listen to people out there who are claiming to defend the faith and you know, they're speaking for the faith and keeping us anchored in the faith, those preachers on, on the TV or internet or, or wherever, if you listen to what they're saying, none of them seems concerned about making God into a God who is too mean. They're all worried that, that in our conception of God that we're making God into a God who sounds too nice. Have you noticed? And this is a problem that is unique only to Christianity. If you go back to the ancient world religions, you know, religions as old as ours, if you, if you go back to ancient Egypt, if you go back to Greek or Roman mythology, if, if you look at Hinduism, there's not even a question about whether or not the gods are nice or too nice. They're not nice at all. No, no one even thinks the gods are nice in those faiths. The gods are gods. They do what they want. Nice or not, it's not even a question. See, in Christianity, this is only a problem for us because we put forward, we believe, we believe that God has revealed himself as a God who's kind, a God who's good, a God who's loving. We're sort of unique in that. We're the only one who's saying that. It, it is the heart of the gospel. It is what makes us different. And yet in spite of that, at the same time, it seems that we're also very concerned. We want to make sure that people don't get the wrong idea. We're kind of like, yeah, he's, he's good, he's kind, he's loving, but he's not too kind. Don't get carried away. You, you can really see this in the way that we talk about repentance. Repentance is an important theological doctrine, uh, and there's a lot to be said about it. I think in our understanding, just regular people this is how we would define repentance. Repentance for us means when you grovel enough to convince someone that you're really sorry for what you've done so they'll forgive you. I think for most of us, this is how we think of repentance. Uh, you grovel enough to convince someone that you're really sorry for whatever you've done, however you failed, whatever you've done wrong, so that they'll forgive you. For us, repentance in human relationships and certainly our relationship with God, it means things like I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely sorry and I'll never do it again and I promise to try harder next time, right? That's what repentance is for us. And, and we believe that if we do a good enough job expressing that, then people will have to forgive us. And so when this relates to God and it relates to our failures, this is kind of how the dynamic goes. For us, in order to get to the grace of forgiveness, in order to get to the kindness of God that we're talking about here this week, when we find ourselves in a moment of failure, we believe that repentance is this middle step, that, that if you wanna get to the forgiveness of God, you've gotta do the repentance thing, you've gotta to explain to God how sorry you are, you've gotta grovel, you've gotta berate yourself in order to get God to forgive you. In other words, what we believe is that God in his heart is not a kind God who's ready to forgive. We believe that God is a pretty strict and perfectionistic God who doesn't really tolerate a lot of messing around. But we believe that when we fail, when we fall short, when we are in need of kindness, that if we can just do the work of berating, 
of judging, of you know, hating on ourselves, raking ourselves over the coals, if we can do that work instead of God, then God will go, okay, you know. <laughs> Sentence complete, you, you've done your time, and he will give us forgiveness. In other words, we believe that at the core of who God is, is a God who has to be coaxed, who has to be convinced to be kind. We do not believe at his heart that is who he actually is, which, which then makes the grace of forgiveness not grace at all. It makes forgiveness into something other than the grace or the kindness of God. It makes forgiveness into something that we earn through our repentance. But here's the problem with that. Grace, by definition, means undeserved love. It means unmerited favor. It means undeserved kindness. And if we think that to get from failure to forgiveness, to experience the kindness of God when we make mistakes, requires our repentance, then, then forgiveness is no longer grace at all. It's the reward for some really hard work. See, Jesus on the cross he defies and, and changes forever our view of God. He challenges everything that we believe about the conventional order of these things. And what Jesus does on the cross is, is he begins to reveal to us, and, and it starts there, but it's all throughout the scriptures, and in the series we're gonna keep unpacking it. He reveals God's kindness as something that is so much bigger than we think, probably bigger than anything we're comfortable with. So uh, today we're gonna look at Luke chapter 23, we're just starting into the season of Lent. I mentioned this at the beginning. It's a 40-day journey that will take us to the cross and then ultimately the empty tomb. Um, and so today at the very beginning of Lent, we're actually going to begin near the end. We're gonna begin with Jesus headed to the cross, on the cross, to see this grace of forgiveness. So Luke chapter 23 says, as the soldiers led Jesus away after he's been beaten, he's been tried, they seized a man named Simon from Cyrene who was on his way from the country and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So uh, just a little bit of history here. When you were being crucified, you had to carry part of your cross to the place of execution. The problem with Jesus is that Jesus had been really punished, sentenced twice. Um, in an attempt to spare his life, he was ordered first to be beaten within an inch of his life to receive a flogging, and he received that punishment. But that wasn't enough for people. They were still crying out for Jesus' punishment. So after being punished already with severe punishment, he was punished again with execution. So he was in no shape physically to be able to carry his own cross. So they put it on this, this other guy as they're leading him outside of the city to be crucified. And it says a large number of people followed him in this procession, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And then in the middle of all that mourning and wailing, Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then you will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, in other words, uh, this is a reference to the Messiah that he would be this green shoot, this life-giving tree that would come. And he's saying, for if people do these things when, when I'm here and I'm alive, if this is how people behave, if, if this is the damage people inflict, if this is the depravity of people, when the Son of God is standing in your midst, what's gonna happen when I'm gone? See, as Jesus is, is being led 
to the place of crucifixion. There is no question, no doubt in his mind how damaged and depraved we are as people. He's experiencing it. And and in fact, he's not only experiencing it himself, he's saying, hey, don't weep for me. It's gonna be way worse for you. And I don't know if he was looking ahead to 2020 and 2021 and looking ahead to to COVID and, and conspiracy theories and cancel culture and all of the things that are going on in our world, all the things that have made our world a mess. But he is talking about a time when, when people are just like begging for the mountains to crush them. They're like, get me out of this. See, every generation has its own problems. And Jesus is saying, you all, you're going to do some serious damage to each other. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. So as he's going to the cross, he's fully aware of what is in us, but I want you to see how he responds to all of that. So they continue on, two other men, both criminals, were also led out in procession with him to be executed. And when they came to the place outside of the city, a place called Golgotha, called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I should hold on to this. Uh, And then they divided his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, you know, like talking through their teeth. My family hates it when I get mad, and I like talk to you, like, don't talk through your teeth at us, right? I mean, sneering. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and they mocked him, so sneering wasn't enough, now he's getting mocked. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews, kind of a mocking thing. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults, so sneering and mocking and insults for one of the criminals, aren't you the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I want you to just take to heart this picture. The picture Jesus is giving us of what is within the very heart of God. See, the soldiers are there dividing up his clothes. He's being crucified for, for something that's totally unjust. And from the cross, while he's, he's beginning the process of dying after already being beaten, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's one picture I want you to hold on to. And then just a moment later, the people are mocking and sneering and insulting him. And Jesus turns to a criminal who's being crucified with him, a criminal who would never go to church, who would not have the opportunity to make an amends or or repay what he had stolen. Never would he give an offering or go on a mission trip or provide a testimony. Never would he be given the opportunity to turn his life around to show that he he was a reborn man, that he was born again. But in spite of all of that, Jesus turns to this criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. See, between these two pictures, the picture of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them to these crowds who are dividing up his clothes, gambling and and, all this ugliness, 
to, to this criminal on his right who he gives compassion to, we're beginning to see a picture of what God's grace of forgiveness actually looks like. See, notice how God actually forgives. And this is true on the cross, we see it, and it's true every day since then. Jesus forgives us preemptively. That means before we've even asked for it, he forgives us. Right? No one at the foot of the cross is saying, oh my gosh, what have we done? We're really sorry, please forgive us. Before they even are asking for forgiveness, Jesus forgives them. He forgives preemptively, and he forgives undeservedly. No one's sorry. They don't deserve to be forgiven, and yet he's pronouncing forgiveness to them, forgiveness to the criminal on his right. Jesus forgives repeatedly. Right? The scriptures say, there was one time the disciples come and they say, how often do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, unlimited times. And not only does he teach that we should do that, but that's what he does. It doesn't matter how many times we do the same thing against him. He's ready to forgive us again and again and again, repeatedly. And we see from the cross that he forgives unconditionally. There are no stipulations, are there? There's no clause in the contract that says, I will forgive you, but if you do this again, you know, three strikes and you're out, or you know, I, I can rescind all of this. See, see, how does Jesus actually forgive? Preemptively, before anyone is even asked, undeservedly, when no one's even really sorry, repeatedly, when we do it again and again, unconditionally, without stipulation. See, see from Jesus we see a picture of a God who frankly is way too kind. We see the picture of a God who does not have to be coaxed or talked into forgiveness as if it's something foreign to him. Instead, in Jesus on the cross, we see the picture of a God for whom grace and, and forgiveness is at his very heart. Now, over my years in ministry, um, one of the questions I've probably been asked as much as anything, and it's a question I'm sure you've probably had at one point in your life. It's this question, why would God create the world the way he did, knowing that it would fall into sin? Like, why would God create a world that was gonna fall into sin? Why would he create people the way we are with the vulnerability that we'd fall into sin? Like, why would God do that? If he knew it was gonna happen, why did he go through with it anyway? And there are all kinds of answers that people try to give to that question. It's a big question. But most of the answers are dissatisfactory for one of two reasons. Either they either deny the, uh, the foreknowledge of God, you know, somehow we were like, well, I mean, maybe God didn't fully know, he didn't fully realize, which of course is heresy. God, God knew, he foreknew everything. He knew exactly what was gonna happen and yet he did it anyway. Or the other answers that people give often diminish God's power, they make him less than all powerful, so it, we kind of are like, well, you understand that God can't do everything, you know, he can't make a rock so big that even he can't lift it, there's some things that are limits or natural. We diminish the power of God, which is also heresy. See, it's an important question. Why would God create a world the way he did? Why would he create us the way we are, knowing that we would fall into sin? Why did he go through with it? And for me, as I've wrestled with that question, uh, there's only one real satisfactory answer, probably has two parts. Uh, for starters, God created us the way he did, even though we were gonna sin, in part to show us that our imperfections aren't as big of a deal as we think they are. Now, I know some of you are really bothered by that statement. 
And so let me clarify that our imperfections, our failures, our sins, they create a lot of complication. They can be a big deal to people around us, but as far as God is concerned, they're not really that big of a deal in this way. If, if we imagine that God created the world and then Adam and Eve sin and God is heartbroken and his dreams are shattered and his masterpiece is destroyed and he's going into mourning now, you couldn't be more wrong. See, God knew that was going to happen and he did it anyway. God, God had the power to change it and he chose not to. From that very moment, God had a plan, and we're gonna talk more about this next week. God had a plan to set it into place. See, see, God takes our imperfections in stride. He's like, okay, you guys just made it all more complicated. It's not gonna be fun for you, but don't mourn for me, mourn for yourselves, right? This is gonna be your problem, but in the end, I'm gonna have my way. I'm gonna get things exactly where I've always wanted them to be. You cannot stop me from doing what I'm going to do because I'm God. And if that's confusing you, we're gonna talk more about that next week. But I think the other really compelling reason, and this is probably even clear, why, why did God create the world the way he did? Why did he create us the way we did with this vulnerability to sin, knowing it's gonna happen? Why did he go through with it? I think maybe it was because God knew that there would be no better way, there would be no better way to show us just how much he loves us. See, I don't know about you, I don't know how it works in your life, uh, but I can tell you in my life, and I'm not sure why this is, I can just say that it is, it has taken my worst moments personally. Uh, moments when I am caught red-handed, you know, caught in the act of doing something I should not be doing, whether as a teenager or a grown man, or moments where I've been confronted with some uncomfortable truths, truths that I could not deny about myself. I, I don't know why it is that in the moments when I've been exposed, you know, stripped naked in my worst failures, I'm not sure why it has taken those moments, but here's what I can say, that it's been through those moments that I've finally been able to see how deeply loved I am. By the people in my life who claim to love me, it's in those moments when I've been at my worst, in my worst moments of failure that I've been able to finally see what they've been telling me all along, that they really love me. Now maybe for some of you, you've not been loved like that. You've not had people in your life who really love you, but I have been, and here's what I can say about my experience that unfortunately it takes those moments when I'm at my worst for me to see it because here's what happens. When I'm doing pretty well in life, it's easy for me to believe that my parents loved me, my wife loves me, my kids love me because I'm useful to have around, because I'm helpful, because I'm a pleasant person, because I'm smart and occasionally funny and maybe still slightly good looking or that I've got something to offer them. It's so easy to believe that the people in my life love me because yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a bad guy and I'm pretty easy to love and I make their life better and I bring good things into their life, so why wouldn't you love me? Right, it's easy to start to believe that those people don't love you for you, they love you for what you bring into their life. But for me, in those moments, when I know I've been exposed as someone who's, who's pretty broken, in moments when, when there's not really much lovable about me, it's been those moments in my life when my parents have said to me, hey, we love you, that suddenly I, I can see it because what in that moment is there about me to, to love? There's nothing there. It's, it's something that transcends my lovability. It's something that exists in their heart or when my wife has given that to me after a big fight or, or something else and, and, and I see that she loves me, it's in those moments I can actually 
believe that it's true. And for me, in my walk with God, in my walk with Jesus, it has been in those moments when I am at my worst, when I am, when I am, when I am in just wallowing in failure. It's been those moments when I can believe, finally believe, that my Savior really loves me. See, why did God create a world where we had the vulnerability to sin? Why did he go through with it? Why did he allow it to happen? Because before the foundation of the world, this is scriptural, before the foundation of the world, the cross was God's plan. The cross was not plan B. The cross was plan A. And without the cross, without the transgression committed by sinners like us, you know, all that ugliness around the cross that we just saw, And without the picture of Jesus taking all of that ugliness into himself and saying, Father, forgive them, today you'll be with me in paradise, without that we would be completely ignorant to the depths of God's kindness and love for us, we would believe that maybe the reason that God loves us, maybe the reason he's kind to us is because we're pretty respectable and we come to church and we give some money and we try to love our neighbors and we do pretty well. Without the picture of us in complete failure, we would, we would misunderstand, we would be ignorant to the depths of God's love. It's not until we see Jesus dying in our place. Dying in our place, giving up his life rather than demanding our lives, pronouncing forgiveness over the crowds and, and giving compassion to the crook. It's not until that moment when we see how God behaves towards people at their absolute worst that we begin to see, the iceberg has exposed, we get to see just how much God loves us, that his love is deeper, his kindness is greater than anything we could ever imagine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right, it's not until we see the son of God given to people who are absolutely unworthy of it It's not until we see that that we can really fathom the love of God. And you see, when we see God this way, it it changes everything. It helps us understand what repentance is actually for. Here's what Paul says in Romans. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? I mean, God is kind. Do you show contempt for his kindness? Do you get mad at him for being too kind? Or his forbearance or patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See what he says? Our repentance is not the thing that brings about God's kindness when we're in failure. It's not our groveling and our our promising to do better and our swear I'll never do that again. That's not what gets God to be kind to us. A lot of us think that's true. But Paul says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So instead of it working the way we think it works, this is how we looked at it earlier, that if I want to get grace, if I want to get forgiveness, if I want to get God to be kind to me in my failure, I've got to do a convincing song and dance. I've got to make a compelling argument. I've got to swear and promise and do better and plead and grovel and berate myself in order to get there, which takes away the grace of forgiveness. Here's what Paul says instead. Here's what we see from Jesus on a cross. That in our failure comes the forgiveness of God. When we don't deserve it, it comes preemptively, it comes repeatedly, it comes undeservedly, right? And from this place of forgiveness, when the kindness of God is given to us, when we don't deserve it, we we get to see how great God's love is for us. We get to see how big his love is for us. And that drives us to repentance. 
See, repentance is not a condition. It's not a precondition of the kindness of God. Repentance is a result. It is a response to people who have been loved by a God who is way kinder than any of us deserve. So what is repentance then? I mean, we've, we've heard about this wrong probably most of our lives. What is repentance? If it's not groveling, if it's not promising, if it's not you know, swearing you're never gonna do it, what is repentance? Repentance is a sense, it, it is an awareness, it is an epiphany that you're headed in the wrong direction. Repentance is that moment where you're traveling along and you go, I'm at a dead end. Either because the brick wall is staring you in the face or you see it coming and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm headed in the wrong direction. Repentance is a turning, it is a 180, not because you believe that God is so mad at you and you're in big trouble. If you don't turn, it's gonna be bad for you. You're gonna be punished if you don't turn. First John 4 says there's no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and Jesus has done away with punishment. The fear of punishment is not what drives our repentance. It is the kindness of God that drives our repentance. The reason you repent, the reason you turn and you go another direction is because you realize where doing life your way has gotten you. And in the face of the kindness of God, you think, I'm gonna do this another way. God, I'm gonna turn away from going the way that I've been going apart from you. I wanna turn toward you because I now see that you're truly kind. Now here's what we know um, also, that repentance is not easy, even when we've experienced the kindness of God. Right, this, this turning, when you're headed in the wrong direction, in my life it feels a little bit like this. I mean, every bit is, is painful and slow and uh, grueling, right? You're, you're, you know where you want to go, but Anybody else? I mean, is this what it feels like for you? You know where you want to go. And, and here's why this is so important, that if, if, if repentance, if turning the other direction is the precondition of us receiving God's kindness, some of us are never going to get there. But instead, once we've experienced the kindness of God first, once we know that he loves us, once we've experienced his kindness and, and we know that he's invited us, in, inviting us into something better, that is the thing that gives us the courage, that gives us the gumption to even want to try to believe that it's worth it to do the hard work of turning around and doing life another way. It is the kindness of God that gives us the courage to believe in something better, a better way, which is what we've just spent a whole series talking about. Uh, the, the best way that I think I can explain this, if, if you just allow me to kind of bring it home this way, uh, and maybe this seems weird at first, um, the best way I can think to explain how this works, how we get from a place of failure and how the kindness of God comes first and it, and it induces in us and brings out in us a spirit of repentance is through five words that my wife Jocelyn has introduced into our house. These are the five words. They've become part of our household vernacular can we just start over? And I remember a few years ago, the first time Jocelyn said these words, can we just start over? And like I said, since then, they've become a regular part of, of our uh, conversations, part of our kids' conversations. Uh, but I remember when, when it happened. 
we were in a big fight and I had done something, I had said something, and you know how this works. I, I think your fights probably work similar. I don't think I'm strange in this way. That there's an initial offense or hurt. There's a failure. You know, there's something that's done against the other person. And then, of course, just to deal with that failure and go, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let, let me, let me you know, let, let, let's be different. Of course, that's not how, that's not how we are. Uh, for me, when I've made a mistake, um, I start to dig myself into a hole and I start to rationalize or I start to accuse. I start to fight back. Well, you said this and you did this and I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't done this first. And I start to self-deceive and I start to deceive. And, 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 and I remember um, feeling, and, and this is kind of how I feel every time, that you know, what started off as, as an initial offense or a mistake, it ends up like this, right? It is a tangled mess. And for me, when I'm in one of these fights with my wife and, and it's like, it's so f- deep, it's so confused now that, that I'm holding this in my hands and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how do I begin to begin to sort this out, to untangle this, to unknot this mess? And, and this feeling is overwhelming for me. It's so overwhelming that I don't wanna untangle it. I just wanna, I just wanna keep avoiding it. And I, I remember just feeling this weight after this fight with Jocelyn of just going like, I don't even know how to get out of this. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to begin to make everything right, how to, how to, how to correct this or to fix this or to say, hey, this is what I really meant or explain this. We're going to spend the next six hours or six days just trying to untangle this mess. And I remember feeling just so like frustrated, like what on earth do we do? And I remember Jocelyn saying these words. She said, just broken in the middle of this fight and I'm, I'm still like amped up and I'm, I'm terrified. I don't know how to deal with this. And she goes, can we just start over? And when I heard those words, just something in me melted because I thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's all I want. Right? I, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to untangle this. I don't know that I can even promise that it's not going to be like this again next week. I, I don't know what to do. But, but more than anything, what I want is I want to just start over. Can we just put this away and can we just start over? I, I want a chance to start over. I want a chance to do better. I, w- I want a chance to interact in not from a place of pain, but to find a better way of interacting, a better way of living, a better way of, of, of relating that is freer and lighter and more full of life. Can we just start over? Yeah, that's all I want. See, that embodies for me what the spirit of repentance is all about. How we get from a place of failure and, and the mess that we make through our failures, the pain that we bring into our lives and the lives of others, how we get out of this place, and it's not from having a strategy of how to fix this and how to make everything right and how to perfect this and to guarantee it's never going to happen again, but it happens through an act of kindness, an act of mercy that says, you know, we don't have to untangle all of this. Instead, Let's just start over. And in me, in light of that opportunity, after receiving that kindness, to say, let's just start over, that to me embodies what repentance is because all I want in that moment is to start over, right? 
all I want is another shot. I want to try. I want to try. And as hard as repentance can be to turn around that 180, I want to try it. See, today, here's what I want to do. I want to give you an experience of that kindness because so many of us have this wrong. We think, we think we have to have the strategy when we come before God. We have to have the strategy of how we're going to fix this before we earn the forgiveness of God. But that's not faithful to how God actually is. When we come to God in our failures, the first step is that he forgives us. He says to us, can we just start over? And it's out of that kindness that we get a chance to do things differently. And so I want to give you an encounter of that right now, uh, with that right now. I want you to experience that. So everyone close your eyes. And I want you to think right now, and this is only for you, I want you to think right now of some big failure in your life. I want you to think of some sin, struggle. And maybe it's something that's ongoing in your life. Maybe it's a a repeated failure. Or maybe it's something that happened a while ago, but you just never have told anyone about it. Maybe it's something that you've confessed to God before, but you never really felt forgiven. Or, Or maybe you never even confessed it to God before. Because you thought you had to have some sort of plan for how you were never going to end up back here again. And you had to do a song and dance and convince God to be compassionate to you. I just want you to identify that sin, that failure, that weakness, that mistake. And I want you to imagine right now that you're holding it in your hands. And it is a tangled, knotted mess. And I want you to imagine that as you're holding it in your hands, you are standing at the foot of the cross. And all around you, there are these crowds, they are yelling and they're mocking and they're cursing and you're seeing the worst of humanity and you know that that lives inside of you too, but you're standing there and this failure, this sin, it is, it is so heavy. It is so burdensome. You're just holding it there in your hands. And and I want you to now imagine that supernaturally, as you're standing there at the foot of the cross with that failure in your hands, I want you to imagine that it supernaturally leaves your hands and it is absorbed into the flesh of Jesus. That it leaves your hands And it is just absorbed, it disappears into his tattered, torn, bleeding flesh. And then, and then, and this is so important, I want you to see, as you look at this happening, I want you to look up into the eyes of Jesus. And I want you to see that there is no disdain, there is no 
disappointment. There's love. There is compassion. There is kindness. Greater kindness than you have ever seen. And although he he took your failure, he took your sin upon himself, he is not mad at it. He's not mad at you about it. Instead, he's looking at you with such love, with such compassion. And then I want you to hear him say, as he takes his eyes off you and he turns them to heaven, I want you to hear him say these words over you, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. And then I want you to see him turn his eyes back to you. As a smile comes to his face, knowing that all of his pain, all of his sacrifice, it is worth it if it gives you the opportunity to just start over. See, Jesus, he's taken all of your failure upon himself. It is buried in the depths of the sea. It is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Your debt has been canceled once and for all. There is nothing left for you to pay for, to carry around, to lug around. There's nothing for you to untangle or fix. Jesus has taken care of that for you. He has shown you incredible kindness before you deserved it, before you asked for it, even if you do it again. And now the only thing left for you to do is to take the opportunity to start over. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.